The world's population is getting older. For the first time in history, there are more people over 64 than children younger than five. Increases in life expectancy and declining fertility are driving growth in both the number and the proportion of older people in almost all countries. Economists and politicians fear that these trends will put ever greater pressure on health systems, on social care, housing and public finances. But do we need to think differently about ageing? Is there not an opportunity in a so-called silver economy? Hello and welcome to New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm Jeremy Kingsley. In today's episode, we explore how technology can support people to age better while reducing the burden on health systems. We tend to think that all these years of extra life have come right at the end, but they haven't. If anything, there's kind of been an extended middle age that's now been set up. How longer lives call for a reimagining of our economy and society and what markets they may open up. Our economies also have to figure out how we can preserve the biopsychosocial health in a very comprehensive way, protecting the frailest. And how frontier science is finding ways to further lengthen our lifespans and, crucially, extend our years of good health right into old age. There are folks that are really looking at how can we repair tissues. We think evolution has enabled us with the opportunity to actually regenerate those tissues. This podcast is supported by Pictet Wealth Management. The average age and relative number of older people in a country's population depends on a number of factors, including fertility and migration. But above all, it is driven by life expectancy. In the UK, where each centenarian gets a letter from the Queen, the number of cards issued has increased by 70% in the last decade. Longer lives are something to celebrate. It seems weird to turn this extraordinary achievement of the 20th century, we've got many more people living for longer, into just a bad news story. That's Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics at the London Business School and the co-author of The Hundred Year Life, a book about how we make the most of longer lifespans. Scott says that longer lifespans have enormous but underexplored implications, good and bad, not just for health but for education, for work, and for the structure of society. In the 20th century, most of the gains of life expectancy we took as leisure after retirement, but that's causing a problem because we can't finance it. So if we're going to work for longer, and we can already see that happening with the number of people over 70 doubling the last 10 years who are working in the US, UK and Japan, then we're probably going to put in time at other stages. And so we're seeing more people take time before they commit to work in their 20s. We're seeing people taking mid-career breaks. And all of these things have pretty fundamental locations for education, for work, uh, for relationships, when we get married, when we get divorced, when we have children. I think there's another stage to look at, which is how do I help people age well and support these longer lives? And that's about keeping them healthier for longer and keeping them productive for longer. And I think this is a new agenda. Countries are beginning to wake up to it. The obvious one to point to, I think, is Singapore here, which is focusing a lot upon local health provision, preventative health provision, uh, adult learning, and maintaining and revising uh, employment practices for older people so that they can carry on working for longer. 
Alongside social innovations and changes to health systems, a host of digital technologies, including video communication tools, wearables and smart home devices, are being developed to support older people. As we're seeing, policymakers and healthcare providers are going to face huge challenges now with this ageing population. Elizabeth Suka is a managing editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit and global healthcare lead. So what tools we have at our disposal to help, you know, be that um, apps or remote monitoring or video consultations, even AI and robotics, these are all things that people are considering, healthcare providers, as to how they can help with this dilemma of an aging population. At the same time, we have shortages of healthcare professionals and even shortages in the informal workforce, such as care home workers. Really, one of the kind of an interesting technology that's being looked at, in my opinion, is um an advanced form of AI, like socially assistive humanoid robots. And these are being used in some countries like Japan. I mean, the, these robots can use, you know, um, speech, facial recognition, movements to assist users. Um, they try to create this close interaction of people to help them in rehabilitation, convalescence. They could prolong older people's independent living, which is really important as we have more people ageing. So we've seen an increase in the use of video consultations, of telemedicine of various kinds since the advent of the pandemic. Is that going to be more common, do you think? Uh, and might this help lower the burden of more resource-intensive in-person care? You're right. These have been increasing. And um, so yeah, COVID-19 has definitely um, uh, transformed this. So for the frail older person, it could mean being in the comfort of your home, having a consultation. And it can also give healthcare professional more information about a person's home environment, which actually could give some information about how to better manage a person's health and well-being, especially if there's a disability involved. But with these digital solutions, healthcare systems that are building on what I would call the patient capital that the healthcare professional has built from face-to-face -face consultations where they've already done those full, you know, physical assessments. So, so these, you know, face-to-face -face consultations, you know, are still important. They still need to happen. And I see digital solutions as a complement to that. And also some older people often live alone and are isolated. And a trip to the doctor, and I would even say to the local pharmacy, can be a highlight or very important part of their routine. And, and seeing people face-to-face -face really helps. So we must remember that as well. Just thinking that every single day about 11,000 of Europeans and Americans turns uh, 65 years old. So it's a, a huge pressure on the society and the healthcare system. Lorenzo Chiari is Director of Health Sciences and Technologies at the University of Bologna. His research focuses on how technology can assist active and healthy ageing. He too sees opportunities for digital solutions to empower older people. We can simply think at how, for example, mobile phones have changed the life of people in the last decades. The uh, availability of uh, smartphones uh, is also a reality uh, in the third and fourth age of our population. And so there's plenty of room for providing new tools and new services to the elderly by means of smartphone apps, for example, exploiting the possibility of designing personal assistants rather than physical or cognitive trainers through the app themselves. And then you can think at something which is a bit more out of the daily routine 
right now, looking into the future and still think at wearables, for example, thinking at something like smart shoes or, or smart garments that uh, can be part of uh, a new way of observing the aging process and also, in the end, to support better aging processes. Elizabeth Sucker again. Many older people over the age of 65, you know, will live with three or four or more chronic conditions and, and they are frail, they may have some disabilities. For some people, their hearing and eyesight has declined and their dexterity and, and, and perhaps they may have arthritis. And so their memory is also not as good as it used to be. So any digital health tools need to consider all this in, in the way they're developed. And also digital literacy is hugely important that needs to be you know, taken into account the ability to easily use these tools. So, you know, the older person is often, especially a frail older person, can often struggle just with digital technology. So in essence, these are quite a few challenges here that they need to be considered from the outset. Lorenzo Chiari. You can think at the environment itself. So the place where old people live, such as smart homes. And so how the house can become a place for providing new services uh, and uh, typical uh, functionalities such as lightning or heating uh, can become you know more uh, personalized easier to uh, to use and finally i would say in the top of this list uh, artificial companions such as companion robots that could introduce uh, social networks and relationships uh, within the environment in which uh, the elderly live. But longer lives mean more than just having more burdensome retirees. We need to think differently about the stages of life and how our society is organised around them. Andrew Scott again. So at an individual level, if you have to pay for your own pension, you realise that you either work for longer or have less. But at a government level, I can try and get someone else to pay for me to work less, and that sounds like a good deal. So that is a, a very real challenge. I think you've also got a bunch of other problems. One is giving people enough notice that they're going to be retiring later, because if I'm you know, 16, I think I'm retiring in five years and I can't, I then understandably I'll be um, uh, upset. Um, the other problem it goes back to this diversity in how we age, because Although the average life expense is increasing, it's not increasing at that rate for everyone. You know, the, the rich tend to see much bigger increases in life expectancy, particularly in the UK and the US. So if you just raise retirement age, you may be eliminating retirement for some of those uh, low-income uh, individuals. And that would be a terrible thing. So kind of what we need is a sort of more flexible system where uh, you can retire at different ages, but you can take different amounts of money depending upon when you do retire. You know, I use the phrase productive ageing, but that's not necessarily being paid for something. It's about a sense of engagement. And, you know, it's about contributing, whether it be in your household or in the community, and finding ways to support older people do that, um, either through the economy or through social entrepreneurship, I think is enormous. Just as we've seen opportunities for new technologies in an ageing economy, Scott says that there are new markets and new business opportunities embedded in these ageing-related problems. What we're seeing now, I think, is longevity insurance coming to the fore. I think this is going to be the big area of the future because the risk now is that I will outlive my assets, I will outlive my health, 
I will outlive my skills or my sense of purpose and engagement. And that's what we've got to try and support with this 100-year life or this new long life. How do we both individually and socially make sure people can support themselves throughout this long life so that it's a, a good, healthy and active one? And that requires at every stage thinking of this future and investing in your future self so that you've got a platform to build on. And it's not just finances. It's also, as I say, your skills and your relationships and your sense of purpose and engagement. And that is, I think, a very big shift for society because we've just not used to planning for this long life. But the really, really most valuable thing going forward is going to be help me age better. Not help me be more comfortable when I'm older, but help me age better so that when I reach 80 or 90, I'm actually independent and capable of doing what I want to do. And that is going to be an enormously valuable market. Some of that will be around science products, but it's about the education sector. Uh, it's about uh, making sure that in our 40s and 50s, we use our leisure time not just as recreation, but also as recreation. And I say that it's going to be the most valuable industry, helping people age better. And I said earlier about teenagers and retirement was invented in the 20th century. Just think of the markets that hinge off of those two stages of life. Well, if we're doing mid-career reinventions in the 40s and 50s, there's an enormous industry to support that. This podcast is supported by Pictet Wealth Management. Alexandra Tavazzi is the global strategist at Pictet Wealth Management. He sees many opportunities in people living longer and healthier lives. One of the biggest trends shaping the world economy is demographic change, especially the growing number of older people. In 2015, there were about 901 million people aged 60 and above around the planet. That's 12% of the population. By 2050, there could be as many as 2.1 billion people in this age group, a fifth of the global population. Surely this is good news. It means improvements in healthcare and medicine are leading to longer lives. This in turn creates huge commercial opportunities. We think the innovations that treat issues appearing in old age, like cardiovascular diseases and dementia, will deliver huge value to society. We also anticipate innovations in smart home systems, recreation, travel and culture to serve the growing number of affluent older people who will, thanks to better lifestyles, stay healthy and active for longer. This is a testament to the success of scientific discovery. And Alexandra Tavazi sees opportunity for economic growth in three areas. The first is biotech. Pioneers in this space conduct their work in the deepest recesses of the human anatomy, developing gene therapies and nanotechnology to catch and treat conditions like dementia and heart disease. The second area of opportunity is for technology to give older people greater freedom. Think of the smartwatches that can detect irregularities in people's movements or routines. These devices can provide peace of mind with a degree of privacy that cameras and microphones cannot. The third area of growth is the improvement of implants and surgical procedures, including the personalization of treatment and use of more robotic-assisted surgery. Robotics could improve surgical outcomes and save money by reducing the number of people needed to carry out the procedure, as well as substantially reducing the time the patient needs to stay in hospital. 
But healthcare is a complicated ecosystem where companies of different sizes operating across life sciences, pharmaceuticals and technology compete over the opportunities. Investors could either support smaller innovators with more risk and more upside, or mature healthcare companies who are all well positioned in the aging and longevity segment. One could even imagine public investments in new technologies with the aim of reducing healthcare costs. We will do well to remember that aging can offer huge opportunities for innovators to support people's health and enrich their longer lives with tailored products and innovations. That was Alexandra Tavazzi of Pictet Wealth Management. As people age, their later years are more likely to be characterised by a decline in health, encumbered by increasing immobility and chronic disease. While lifestyle improvements such as a better diet, more physical exercise and reduced smoking have led to longer lifespans and postponed major health events like heart attacks and strokes, could we go further in enabling people to be fully active for longer? From stem cell research to more radical genetic approaches, some scientists and biotechnology companies on the cutting edge of medicine think we can elongate our lifespan and eliminate diseases like cancer and diabetes that frequently make our last years and decades full of suffering. If you can reduce the time we spend in slow decline where the medical expenditure rates go through the roof, you can realize tremendous financial savings. And we shouldn't be concerned about if folks are living longer. If folks are living longer and living healthier, that's going to be a net financial benefit. Michael Hufford is the chief executive of Ligenesis, a biotech firm looking to extend human lifespans by developing organ regeneration technology. So Ligenesis is a venture capital-backed biotechnology company, and we're focused in organ regeneration. And so the platform we're using really is quite remarkable. It uses fundamentally the body's lymph nodes. So our lymph nodes, every human has four or five hundred lymph nodes spread throughout your body. And evolution designed those lymph nodes to be highly effective what we think of as bioreactors. What they do naturally is they grow T cells to help us fight infection, because historically that's what we died of as a species were infections. And so our lymph nodes are these incredibly powerful bioreactors. And most people are aware that that bioreactor can be used for a malignant purpose. So we're aware that if a loved one has a cancer that metastasizes to the lymph nodes, that that usually is a bad sign. And that's a bad sign in part because the lymph node will help grow whatever type of cell finds itself within it. So in the case of cancer, that can be deadly metastases. What our technology uses is discoveries out of really a decade's worth of research at the University of Pittsburgh by Eric Legasse, our chief science officer. Uh, he was working at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine here at the University of Pittsburgh, and he discovered that you could use that lymph node to actually grow functioning mini organs, what we think of as ectopic organs, organs that are in a different place in the body than they naturally are. And his original discovery was with liver cells. So a liver cell's a hepatocyte. And if you put a hepatocyte into a lymph node, that lymph node will grow those hepatocytes. Those hepatocytes will actually come to overtake the lymph node and remarkably grow a fully functional mini liver. 
that's vascularized, that is, it has blood flow, and it it will replicate the same functions as the native liver. It will filter the blood, and actually over this decade of research will provide a life-saving therapeutic effect. And so the technology is fundamentally using that lymph node as a bioreactor, and we've discovered we can grow a whole host of different organs, from liver to kidneys to the pancreas to the thymus. Stepping back from organ generation specifically, what are the main lines of attack for longevity science as a whole? Does it, does it break into different buckets? Yeah, it does indeed. There have been some wonderful papers looking at those kind of broad biological categories. If, if you're going to try to affect longevity broadly, whether that means living longer or just increasing what's called your health span, right? Your, the years of life may not increase or may not increase substantially, but the years of healthy living could potentially increase quite substantially. So even if you're living, say, to 90, if 85 of those years are really very healthy um, years where you're really thriving, you, it may not be that the goal is to live to 150 if you start to decline when you're 80, right? But if you can stave off the, the morbidity and increase what's called the health span, that would have tremendous value in all sorts of societal implications. And of course, there are a variety of different ways folks are trying to achieve that from antisenescence uh, technologies, folks uh, focusing on repair, folks like us really focusing on regeneration where we're not really repairing the native organ at all, right? There are folks that are really looking at how can we repair tissues. Our focus is much more on, well, we think evolution has enabled us with the opportunity to actually regenerate those tissues. Other companies are taking almost more traditional pharma-like small molecule approaches um, and trying to target a very specific pathway uh, to either regenerate or repair tissues or remove cells that are kind of these zombie cells, these senescent cells that continue to live but not really exert any useful biological effect. So there are these host of different approaches. And again, one of the challenges for the field is distinguishing what's good science from what's good science but could lead to a, you know, a commercially viable therapy. Breakthroughs in medicine have continuously pushed life expectancy. People are not just living longer, their lives are getting healthier. Andrew Scott again. If you look at the global burden of disease data set, the amount of life that is healthy has remained roughly the same. So for every 10 years of extra life, most of them are healthy, but there's a widening period at the end that is unhealthy. But we should focus as well on that healthy increase in life expectancy that's occurred. Because that's a great opportunity if we prepare for it. And I think that's the really interesting about this longevity. It says two things. You've got more time ahead of you. No matter what your age, given these life expectancy trends, you have more time ahead of you. And you need to invest and prepare for it. The second thing is that to an extent we've discovered that age is malleable. There's things that you can do that influence how well you age. And if you listen to the sort of scientists working at the frontiers, they claim they're about to take that to another level and we'll see if that's true or not. But having more time and age being malleable means there are steps you can take now to prepare for that future. And that's kind of a bit daunting, but also exciting. So, you know, as a simple-minded economist, if we're living longer and we're healthier for longer, there should be an economic opportunity there rather than doom and gloom. You mentioned uh, economic opportunities there. What do you think is being done at the moment to take advantage of these? I think firms struggle a little bit to serve this marketplace. 
I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the first is that they tend to sort of define the older market as plus 65, plus 50 sometimes, the so-called silver economy. And I think as soon as you do that, you're kind of lost to begin with because you wouldn't go around saying, well, the under 65 market is a single homogenous market that needs this. And if you did, you wouldn't get any of that marketplace. Lorenzo Chiari from the University of Bologna agrees. Yeah, this opens also a number of new markets, uh, and in particular, this so-called silver tsunami can and actually require to, to think uh, at the new needs that this part of the population uh, is generating for the future, which requires uh, having uh, new products, having new services available, and having also new business models, because that's actually a, a real challenge at the moment. And there's a transition there which is needed in the way in which also investors, private investors, are looking at uh, not just the issue of health, but uh, more particularly to the issue of the aging of the population. The key stat I always think is a stunning one is in the 20th century, the last 100 odd years, every 10 years, best practice life expectancy has increased by two or three years every decade. So that's like having another six to eight hours at the end of every day. So just imagine if a day went from 24 to 32 hours, you'd structure it differently. And of course, in the 20th century, we sort of arrived at a three-stage view of life. We had education, we had a career that sort of went to 60, 65, and then we had retirement. And that lasted pretty well for life expectancy of 70. But if you've got to stretch it out to 90 or 100, it's really going to start to creak at the seams because you've got to prepare for this longer time and there's nothing you can kind of learn at 20 that will still be relevant in the workplace when you're 60 or 70 and so you're going to need to think about how you structure time in a different way in the 20th century we invented teenagers and we invented retirees and as life gets longer we're also inventing whole new stages of life and we're going to have to work for longer if you live for longer you've got more time the question is how do you allocate it it seems then that with all the new technological and business opportunities arising from an ageing population, we are finally getting the one thing we were told we could never buy more of. Time. That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series, along with articles and further reading, at newfoundations.economist.com.